Well, we're talking about being led by the Holy Spirit, and you can turn, uh, if you like, to uh, some of the text scriptures that we're using. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul is speaking of the, the wholeness of man. He's speaking of the entirety of man. He said, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies the three parts of man. Now, uh, the world divides man into different, different categories or uses different terms. For example, um, uh, psychology says that there's a, uh, there's the, certainly everybody recognizes the body. But then they say that there is a mind and a subconscious mind. Well, if, if man had a subconscious mind and the Bible doesn't tell us about it, then God has done us a disservice. And the fact that the Holy Spirit, assuming he knows more than man does, that's a big jump. But assuming that, uh, that God knows more than man does, and assuming that the Holy Ghost is telling us the truth, Paul talks about the completeness of man as being spirit, soul, and body. That means there can't be anything else. That means there's nothing left out of the list, and there can't be anything that you can add to the list. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So man is a spirit. He has a soul, and he lives in a body. Now, as I said, the body's easy to identify. You just pinch yourself, and you figure out what that is. But the spirit and soul are, the, the, are more difficult to discern, discern between the two and, and to identify how each one works or is supposed to work regarding our relationship with the Lord and uh, spiritual development. Um, the Bible talks about, specifically, it talks about the soul as being the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's the reasoning part of man. It's the intellectual part of man. It's the emotional part of man. But more importantly, it's the will. There's a battle for the will of man every day of, the, of your life. The devil is trying to influence you and waging a war against you, against your spirit specifically, in order to influence you to determine your will. Now, he can't decide what you will do or what you will not do. Your will is under your control, not under the devil's. It's also interesting to note that your will is not under God's control. It's only under yours. And so there's a battle for the will of man. It's the eternal battle for the will of man, at least as long as we have these physical bodies. Until Jesus comes back, there will always be a battle for the will of man. So when we talk about being led by the Holy Ghost, we're going to have to define our terms somewhat. We're going to have to understand how things work. I don't believe uh, that you could ask any Christian who's sincere, and let's assume for a minute that all Christians are sincere, But let's make that assumption. Any sincere believer wants to be led by the Holy Ghost. At least they do from their hearts. Whether they've lined their will up with the fathers or not, every believer would want to be led by the Holy Spirit, especially if they understood the Holy Spirit always leads us into victory. Right? Well, then what keeps man from being led by the Holy Ghost? In most cases, it's a lack of understanding. Most Christians don't understand how the Holy Spirit leads us. Proverbs 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of man, not the mind of man, not the soul of man, not the emotions of man, but the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now, the candle is, uh, uh, another translation says, the lamp or the light of the Lord. The spirit of man is the candle or the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. In other words, God reveals himself from within man. 
being the lamp of the Lord or the candle of the Lord means that which God uses to enlighten or to reveal himself or to reveal the future, to reveal direction. So it's telling us very specifically, the Bible says, now I know the church doesn't go along with this as a whole because of lack of understanding, but the Bible is telling us very specifically that the only way you're going to know God is from within, not from outside. You're not ever going to know God from circumstances. You're not ever going to know God from feelings. See, so many times the church world talks about loving the Lord and they're talking about a feeling. You're never going to know God by feelings. Now, thank God for feelings. Feelings are wonderful things. God made them. They're good. They're right. But you're never going to know God by feelings. The Bible never says that the feelings of man are the lamp of the Lord. It never says the mind of man is the lamp of the Lord. You're never going to know God from your thoughts. You're only going to know God from your spirit. Now in Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That tells us very specifically that God expects all of his children to be led by his spirit. God expects every believer to be led by the spirit of God. Now how how widespread in the church world do you think that is? How many believers are living up to that? How often is being led by the Spirit even talked about in church circles? In my experience, I never heard about it before I got around Brother Hagin. I grew up in the church. I never heard one word ever about being led by the Holy Spirit. Ever. When I heard Brother Hagin talking about it, it was like, where did he get that? And then he showed me in the Bible where it was. I followed along and found the same scriptures that we're talking about this morning along with some others. And I thought, how in the world could that be in there? Because I did a daily Bible reading. It's an amazing thing when you've got your mind shut off to certain things, when you've already determined your will or your thinking or your thought pattern about how things are or are not. It's amazing how many things are blind to you. You can see them. And, and overlook them and not even know that they're there. In other words, once you have your mind made up, once your will is determined, you've blocked your mind off to whatever you've determined your will against. You determine your will against the things of God, you'll miss so much of God's plan. But if you determine your will for the things of God, your, your life opens up to everything the Bible says. So for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's good news. We want to be led by the Spirit of God and should be. How's he going to do that? Verse 16 says the Spirit himself. King James says itself, but he's not in it. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirits. Now put those verses together. Proverbs 20, verse 27, and Romans 8, 16. The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. Can you see it? God reveals himself by bearing witness with your spirit. God gives direction by bearing witness with your spirit. God enlightens you to the truth by bearing witness with your spirit. Again, that's not your mind. It's not your thoughts. He doesn't bear witness with your thoughts. 
See, so many people accept God to the degree that they can think him out, that they can understand him with their their minds. You'll never understand everything about God with your mind. I know many things to be true because the word says so, and I have no idea how in the world it works. I can't figure out the new birth. Can you? The Bible says that the new birth, as soon as you make Jesus the Lord of your life, God takes out the old heart, the stony heart out of you, and puts a new spirit or a new heart within you. How in the world does that work? I don't know. I just know that it did. So glad I didn't have to understand it for it to work. Amen? Now, we need to understand what the Bible is talking about when it refers to the spirit uh, and, and understand uh, the terminology that the Spirit of God uses. Turn with me over to First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. Paul is talking to the wives, specifically wives that have unsaved husbands, and he's instructing them or encouraging them not to put all of their efforts into the outward appearance, and and that's the only purpose for the things that he's writing. He's not saying that any of the things they're doing are wrong. He's just saying, don't make that your only focus. But then it says in verse 4, he says, But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Notice that, he, that Peter, by the Holy Ghost, uses the terms heart and spirit interchangeably. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. In other words, he's saying the heart is the spirit the heart is the spirit now notice something else is he says the heart is a hidden man the spirit is a hidden man he's a hidden man that's why the church hadn't figured out who they are because he's hidden well what's he hidden from he's hidden from the five physical senses he's hidden from the understanding of mind unless we renew our minds to the word He's the hidden man of the heart. Now, notice in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul says the same thing, uses a little different terminology, or uses it in a different context, I should say. He's talking about circumcision. Verse 29, Romans 2, 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Now, here Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to use the same illustration. Why? Because it's the one the Holy Ghost used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. In other words, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the spirit. When it talks about the heart, it's talking about the spirit. Now, that's of extreme importance because if you're going to understand spiritual things, if you're going to be led by the Holy Ghost, you're going to have to understand spiritual things. And if you're going to understand spiritual things, you're going to have to understand when the Bible is talking about the spirit as opposed to the spirit to the soul or the body of man. And again, as I said, the body and the spirit are easy to identify or to differentiate between. But the soul and the spirit are difficult. As a matter of fact, the, the Bible says there's only one thing that can do it, and that's the word of God. Now, notice with me over in um, Mark chapter 11. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11 for a moment. These are some scriptures that you should be very familiar with. Spend any time around here, you are anyway. Mark chapter 11. 
Jesus has cursed the fig tree the morning before, the day before. And then they passed by there the next morning. Jesus spoke to it and said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever, because it was time for it to produce figs. It had the appearance of a producing tree, but it didn't have any figs on it. So Jesus cursed it. He said, No man eat fruit of thee here for, for uh, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. That's it for you. And they come by the next morning, and Peter, calling to remembrance, drew everybody's attention to the fig tree that was dried up from the roots. And Jesus answering said unto them, verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Now other translations say this in different ways. This word, uh, this preposition in is also the word, the uh, same word that's translated of. So you don't really know which way it could be. It could be both. It probably is both. It doesn't change the meaning to translate it both ways. But it could just as accurately be translated have faith in God or have, faith, have the faith of God. One translation says have the God kind of faith. Well, that wouldn't take anything away from the scripture either because what other kind of faith would God have other than the God kind? Now, Jesus is going to describe the God kind of faith. But more importantly, he's telling the disciples they can have the God kind of faith. Now, that's the point where a lot of people just turn their minds off right there. Well, the very idea to say that we could be on the same level of faith as God. Well, folks, please understand, I'm not saying that. Jesus did. Jesus said, have the God kind of faith. The understood subject is you. You have, choose to have, actively determine. To have the God kind of faith. It's up to you. You can do it. I want you to say something with me. Say this. Just turn your minds off. We'll do this real quick before you can think about it. Just say this after me. I have the same faith as Jesus. And if that ever dawns on you, that will change your life. Jesus didn't have some special faith because he was the son of God. If he did, he would have told the disciples, you can't do this. He would have told the disciples, I did this because I am the son of God. Don't try this on your own. But that's not what he said. He told them to have the God kind of faith. Well, that would have to imply that that's the kind of faith that he just used, didn't it? And he's saying, have the God kind of faith. Now, I want you to understand something, folks. Faith is a spiritual force. I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here. Faith is a spiritual force. I'll prove it to you from these scriptures, and we could take other scriptures as well. But remember over in Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 10, it says, For with the heart man believeth. Now, if the heart's the spirit, then believing or having faith is a spiritual force. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and confession is made unto salvation. For with the heart of the spirit man believes. If you don't identify your spirits, you're never going to be able to operate in the God kind of faith. That's why this is so important. That's why spirit, soul, and body is of utmost importance. Because unless you, well, let me say it this way. You'll never find any strong Christian anywhere that doesn't understand the difference between spirit, soul, and body. And because that is such a limited and unknown subject in most of the church world, that's why the church is so weak. 
because the church spends its time praying or what, they, what it calls praying, which really just amounts to begging God to do something rather than exercising spiritual forces that have the power to change things. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody else. I live too much of my life this way. I'm glad I found out when I did, but I sure wish I'd found out earlier. Don't you? So Jesus said, have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. Well, if heart means spirit, shall not doubt in his spirit, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now notice the first thing that he says about the God kind of faith. He says, we know from Scripture, other Scripture we just quoted over in Romans chapter 10, and he confirms it here, that faith, the God kind of faith, is a spiritual force. And that spiritual force of faith has something to do with your words. That spiritual force of faith has something to do with your words. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever said anything that you didn't decide to say first? Even if you spoke in the heat of the moment, even if you spoke in anger, have you ever said any word, has any word ever come out of your mouth that you did not decide or will to say? As soon as it came out, you may have wished you hadn't. But the point is very simple and everybody gets the point. No word has ever come out of your mouth that you didn't choose first to speak. And for that reason, since there's a constant battle for the will of man, since there's a constant battle between your spirit, where God lives, talking to believers, and the devil who's trying to influence you through your mind and through physical circumstances, all for the same goal, to influence the will of man so that man makes a decision according to whichever side he listens to. Since there is that constant battle for your will, your words have just identified your will. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, have the God kind of faith. Now, the only thing that we have uh, recorded in this story is that Jesus spoke to the tree. He didn't speak to God about the tree. He didn't take a knee in prayer. Say, oh, God, please do something about this terrible tree. It was supposed to feed me, but it didn't do its job. He spoke to the tree. Now, did he speak to the tree accidentally or on purpose? Therefore, can we say that the words that came out of his mouth concerning the tree expressed his will about the tree? Your words express your will, folks. Your, word just, your words identify who wins the battle. Your words identify who wins the battle. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever, there's a word for anybody, Whosoever shall say unto this tree, or unto this mountain, or unto this circumstance, or unto this bank book, or unto this body, or any situation that you face in life. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. That's an expression of what you want the circumstance to do. Right? 
Could we not generalize this and say, whosoever shall speak his will concerning his circumstances? Isn't that what he's saying? Now, Jesus said in a lot simpler terms than I did, but isn't that what he's saying? Whosoever shall speak his will concerning the circumstances he faces and shall not doubt in his spirit. And shall not doubt in his spirit. Now, remember what we found out about the heart of the spirit. He's a hidden man. He's the hidden man. He's the man that's hidden from the five physical senses. So not doubting in his heart means refusing to express his will as influenced by the circumstances. Or we might simplify that and say refuse to speak according to what he sees or feels. That's what doubting in the heart is, isn't it? It's speaking according to what you see or feel. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Well, if he's talking about doubting in the heart, he must be talking about believing in the heart. But shall believe in his heart or in his spirit that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Let me show you an example of this. Turn with me over to John chapter 20. Let me show you an example between believing in the heart and believing with your mind or influenced by the circumstances. Now, you need to understand something, folks. The Bible does not talk about faith in any other way or any terms other than the God kind of faith. People believe in all kinds of things, things that are true and things that are not true. And just because somebody believes in something doesn't make it true, right? So there are all kinds of things that we could identify as faith, but the Bible doesn't define things that way. The Bible has one definition of faith, and that's the God kind of faith. Everything else is, is well, there's God, the God kind of faith and everything else. So when the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about the God kind of faith, the faith that comes by believing in God's word. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith, meaning the God kind of faith, comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So believing in your heart or believing in your spirit has to be believing according to the word because that's the only thing that brings faith. And that's the only thing the Bible identifies as faith is believing in the word. Now, in a, in a general sense, everybody believes something, whether it's true or untrue, whether it's according to the word or according to the devil's influence or whatever it might be, according to the neighbor's opinion, whatever it might be. Everybody believes something, but the Bible doesn't define it that way. The Bible defines faith as the God kind of faith, and everything else is unbelief. So in, in John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared to the disciples after his resurrection and they were glad and they were excited about it and then he disappeared and Thomas wasn't with them and he told Tom, they told Thomas about what had happened. Now notice the story. We'll pick it up in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them. Now remember, Jesus has just told us, your words express your will concerning the subject or the situation you face. So Thomas says a situation where something he hasn't seen is being told to him as truth. And what he's been told is that Jesus is alive. But what does Thomas do? Thomas said unto them, except I shall see in my hand or in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I cannot believe. Did you notice I misquoted that? 
He didn't say he cannot believe. He said, I will not believe. Folks, I want you to understand something. Thomas is expressing his will. In every situation we face, in every circumstance we come upon, there's a battle for the will of man. It can be uh, a strong, major conflict, or it can be just a minor thing, and you might not even understand that it's going on. But it's always a conflict. Whatever the size of the conflict is, there's always a conflict. And that is, or we could even say it this way. We could say there's always a choice. There's a choice to express your will according to God's word or according to something else. Just like God's word talks about, there's faith and there's everything else. And everything else is called unbelief. So we could say that we're faced with the same circumstance, the same choice, the same conflict in every endeavor of life. In every circumstance we encounter, we have a choice to express our will either toward God's word or toward everything else. Anything and everything else, which the Bible identifies as unbelief. That's the battle for the will of man. That's the battle for the will of man. Now, since the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly, the reason or the means whereby the revelation of God comes, him revealing himself to us, him revealing his direction for us, his will for our lives, and so forth. The only way that he's going to be able to reveal himself to us is by us choosing to exercise our will according to to his word in other words you've got to win the battle for the will if you're ever going to find the leading of God which is why most Christians don't know how to be led they allow themselves like Thomas to be influenced by other things now what is Thomas influenced by well he saw Jesus die he saw the life go out of Jesus body he saw his body buried and now he's being told without any evidence to support it In fact, he's being told something that contradicts every piece of evidence that he has, every physical evidence and physical observance about Jesus. He's being told Jesus is alive, and he says, he chooses, he chooses not to believe. I will not believe unless I can see the print of the nails in his hand and put my finger in the print of the hand, print of the nails in his hand. And thrust my hand into his side. What is he saying? He said it's going to take something that I see and something that I can feel. Without those two things, I will not believe. Here's the battle for his will. And he's made his choice. He says, I will only believe what I can see and feel. Notice what happens. After eight days again, verse 26, the disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Immediately goes to Thomas. It kind of implies that Jesus heard Thomas say what he said. I mean, Jesus doesn't sit down with the group and say, well, how's everybody doing? And then Peter says, "Uh, well, we had a situation with Thomas about eight days ago. Thomas, tell Jesus what you said. That's not the way this story goes. Jesus appears and says, peace be unto you, Thomas. Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither my side, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And now notice what Jesus says, and be not faithless. 
but believing. Jesus calls Thomas choice, the determination of Thomas's will to believe only what he can see and feel. Now realize this is in relation to Jesus. Now lest we get down on Thomas too bad or too hard, please realize that 90% plus of the church, at least the American church, is in Thomas's position. They will only believe about God what they can see and feel. So they're only looking to physical circumstances or feelings to try to give them direction from God. And it never comes that way. So he says, Thomas, put your finger into the print of the nails and put your hand into my side, just like you said that it was going to take for you. And be not faithless. Notice what Jesus calls the condition, the choice to believe only what you can see and feel. He calls that faithless. Now, we call that believing in what you see. But God calls that faithless or unbelief. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not say, Well, finally, you're on board with us. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Notice there's no blessing attached to Thomas's kind of Thomas's choice to believe. None whatsoever. There is no blessing attached to the Thomas kind of faith, believing in what you see or feel. None. He said the blessing comes from those who have not seen and yet believe. Look with me to Romans chapter 4. Let's look at the contrast here. Romans chapter 4 tells us the kind of faith that we're supposed to follow. The faith of Abraham. We'll start in verse 17. As it is written, this is God and his promise to Abraham. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him, or like unto him, another translation says, whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. Who, talking about Abraham, against hope without any natural circumstance or physical circumstance to give him hope. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. Now what is he basing that belief on? If he doesn't have any physical circumstances to substantiate it or to tell him that it's true. What is he believing in that he might become the father of many nations? Well the next phrase tells you. According to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. In other words, the only thing he had to base his hope on is what God said to him about children. No physical circumstance in his body. No physical circumstance in his life or his situation. No evidence, physical evidence in in any means or manner whatsoever. The only thing he had to go on in an impossible situation after he was too old to have children, the the only thing that he had to go on was what God had told him about having children or we might say it this way the only thing he had to go on was God's word and being not weak in faith verse 19 being not weak in faith he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to God I like the American standard version of verse 20 a lot better 
It says that he didn't consider his own body, the physical circumstances, what he could see or feel. Well, then what did he consider? But looking under, the American Standard Version says, but looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief. Looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. In other words, you've got two situations here, two contrasts. You've got Thomas who said, I'll only believe what I can see and feel. You've got Abraham who had nothing to see and feel to support what he believed. Well, what did support what he believed? Something that he couldn't see, the word of God. The word of God. And he refused to look at the things that he could see and feel in the natural realm, in this physical realm, to dissuade him from exercising his will to believe what God said. How do we know he exercised his will? Because he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. How do you give glory to God without opening your mouth? How do you give glory to God without using words? How do you give glory to God without the exercise of your will to speak? You can't. In other words, it's telling us that he had the same situation, the same conflict, same choice as Thomas. Thomas had nothing to appear, nothing to look at, only the testimony of the other apostles. But he had the testimony on the other hand, the physical evidence on the other hand. Wait a minute, I saw Jesus die. I saw him buried. What's he going to believe? He could have believed either one. He could have made his choice to believe either way. He chose to believe in what he could see or feel. Abraham was just the opposite. Abraham had physical circumstances that told him, screamed at him, you are too old to have children. You can't have children. Sarah's too old. This is a done deal. Impossible. And on the other hand, he had God's promise. Look at the stars of the sky. So shall your seed be. So what does Thomas do? Thomas looks away from the testimony that Jesus is alive to the physical evidence of I saw him die and I saw him buried. Abraham looks away from the physical evidence of the impossibilities in the natural realm to have children to what he can't see but what he heard. He heard God say, so shall your seed be. And what happened? Thomas was faithless. Abraham was strong in faith. Now, Thomas was lucky. Thomas was lucky that he was one of the 12. Because had he not been one of the 12, he probably never would have entered into the kingdom of God. But it was important for Jesus to not lose any of the ones that he had chosen. So Jesus appeared to him and says, okay, touch me. Stick your hand in my side. That'd be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? I mean, if I was Thomas, I would have said, oh, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> it just took me by surprise. Jesus, I believed all the time. Thomas was lucky that Jesus appeared because he certainly wasn't obligated to. God has never been and never will be obligated to... to uh, Honor somebody's choice to be faithless. God honors faith. And remember, when the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about the God kind of faith. Now turn with me over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Verse 13. 
tells us about the Holy Ghost and tells us about being led or guided by him. Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross, he said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, where's the Holy Ghost going to guide you? He's going to guide you into all truth. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Turn the page over to John chapter 17. This is after Jesus goes to pray just before he's taken captive by the Romans. Jesus in his prayer, there's a lot of great things that, were, that are there that we could talk about. He's praying that we'd be one with the Father. The, he's praying for the church, that you and I would be one with the Father just like he's one with the Father. Not lower class, not second class, but the same relationship, the same union with the Father that Jesus had, which was the source of all the supernatural and miraculous things that he did, is what he prayed that we would have. Well, I wonder if God intended to answer that prayer. Well, sure, he's praying according to the will of the Father. That's the relationship that we have now. But notice in verse 17, John chapter 17, verse 17, is a part of this prayer. Jesus says, sanctify them, meaning the church, meaning you, through thy word. Thy word is truth. Now back to John chapter 16, verse 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. Well, what's the truth? Jesus said, talking about the truth in both cases, he has to mean the same thing in both verses of Scripture, doesn't he? I mean, the truth's not going to be one thing in John 16, 13, and the truth be another thing in John 17, 17, when Jesus is the one doing the talking. So when it says in John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth, what can we look for the Holy Ghost to guide us into? The Word. The Word. In other words, the first place that the Holy Ghost is going to lead you, he's going to lead you into believing the Word. First and foremost. In every area of life, in every aspect of life. In other words, the conflict that takes place in every one of our situations, every condition, every circumstance that we face, the conflict or the battle for the will of man, you've got the Holy Ghost on one side always impressing upon you or bearing witness with your spirit to believe God's word. Always. Always. How many times have you been sitting in a service or sitting in any situation and the thought comes to you, that's not going to work? You'll read the scripture, you'll hear something preached, and the the thought comes to you, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Wouldn't it be nice if the Holy Ghost spoke as loud as the devil? Because we always hear him. We always hear the devil. We always hear the thoughts of doubt. We always hear the devil speaking to our minds, never to our hearts because that's not where he is, never to the hidden man, always to the outward man, always pointing you to some physical circumstance or some situation, some condition that disqualifies the word. And it's nothing new. It's the devil. The devil's been doing this from the beginning. But it's always right there. Many times those thoughts are screaming in our ears, so to speak. Here's why it won't work. You can't give your, you can't pay your tithes and give an offering today. Look at all the bills you've got stacked up. You need that money for other things. And what does the Holy Ghost do? He's just quietly bearing witness with our spirit. The word's true. 
The word's true. But the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He won't force you to choose God's word. He won't force you to choose to believe. The devil trying to force you. He'll try to force you not to believe. He'll try to force you to believe in what you can see and feel. But not God. Not the Holy Ghost. He's a perfect gentleman. He's always there bearing witness with your heart. What is the devil doing? He's trying to scream loud enough to where you can't hear the Holy Spirit bearing witness with your heart. He's trying to distract you with the circumstances. One of the great stories that we have in the scriptures in Numbers chapter 13 where it tells about the children of Israel coming to the edge of the promised land. Great story. Great example of, of, of the conflict that takes place for the will of man. Numbers chapter 13 tells us about Moses sending in the 12 spies into the promised land. They go into the promised land and find out it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's everything God told them that it would be. God had also told them that the people lived there. He told them the Hittites were there, the Jebusites were there, the Amalekites were there, and Canaanites were there, and others. So they go into the land and find out, wow, this land is great. But, uh-oh, people live here. Nothing new. God told them that already. But they look at the size of the walls around the cities. They look at the size of the armies of the, of the opponents. They look at all the physical circumstances. Now they've got physical evidence that proved that what God said about the land was true. But they look at all the other things around them. Ten of the twelve spies came back and said, we can't do it. Now Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 says, talking about this very instance, it says, take heed that unless there be in you an evil heart of unbelief, like them. In other words, their position is what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. What does that have to mean? That means they took sides against God's word. That means they exercised their will against what God said. They lost the battle, so to speak. Their will was determined by something other than what God said. And that's what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. Now, what God calls evil is a whole lot different than what man considers to be evil. Man considers evil to be wrongdoing. God considers evil to be taking sides against his word. Now, certainly taking sides against his word will lead you to wrongdoing. But it's not the behavior itself that's the issue. It's the choice that man makes. It's the determination of man's will. That's the important thing. Are you with me? So the 12 spies go into the promised land. They come back. They bring the, the, the fruit of the land and the a cluster of grapes that two people have to carry between them on a stick. Those 10 spies come back. 10 of the 12 say, the land is everything God said that it was, but, but the people be strong that live in the land. And they've got big walls around their cities. Caleb spoke up real quickly and said, we're well able to take the land. God's with us. In other words, he's taking sides with God's word. We're well able to take the land. But the, 12, the other 10 of the 12 said, we're not able to go up against them. We're not able to go up against them. Now, folks, I want you to understand, the evil heart of unbelief is when they took sides against God's word. It's when they took sides against God's word. Did they know there was a conflict going on between the devil and God? Did they know that there was a fight going on for their will? Did anybody stop and, and instruct them and say, now, wait a minute, as soon as you guys get back, 
There's going to be this conflict. There's going to be this struggle. It's going to be a spiritual struggle. It's going to be a struggle between what God has promised and whatever you see in, this, in the promised land that might deter you from taking possession of it. They had no clue. Well, if we get a clue and understand how things work, we should have a great advantage in, over them, shouldn't we? We should. But how many Christians do get a clue? A whole lot less than what I'm sure God would want it to be. So what did they do? Ten of the twelve said, we're not able to take the land, for they are stronger than we are. Now, what has happened? What they saw influenced their decision. What they saw in the promised land, what did they see? Well, they saw the walls around the cities. They saw all the people there. They saw the the sons of Anax, which come of the giants. They saw the Amalekites. They saw the Hittites. They saw the Jebusites. They saw the Canaanites. Looks like too many people and too strong tribes. What did it do? It changed how they saw themselves. There we saw the sons of Anak there, the sons of the giant, and the Amalekites, and the Canaanites, and the Jebusites. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, they said. They said. How do we know what their will was? Folks, you can always identify somebody's will by what they say. Now, if they say one thing and do another, that's a problem. You can't always identify. But you can always tell what somebody's will is by what they say. What did they choose? The ten spies chose to take sides against God's word. Caleb and Joshua stood up in the middle of it and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't rebel against God. In other words, don't take sides against what God said. We're still able to do it. God's on our side. We can do it. I know they're strong. I saw the walls too. I saw the same people you did. I saw their military strength. But God's on our side. God said the land was ours. What are they going by? What are Caleb and Joshua going by? They speak and show what they've determined their will to be based on what God said, not what they saw. See, they didn't walk into the promised land and see any evidence that the land was theirs. Yet God said that it was. They didn't see any reason whatsoever, any physical evidence whatsoever, any circumstance to speak of that said they can take possession of this land. They saw they were outnumbered. They saw that the the military strength of all these different people and armies was greater than theirs. They saw that they were outmatched. But they also knew that God's word said, God had given his word saying the land is yours. I'll deliver the land unto you. So they're going by what they can't see. The ten spies went by what they could see. The ten spies are taking the Thomas route. They're doing the same thing Thomas did. Because of what I can see and feel, I say we can't do it, they said. Caleb and Joshua were just the opposite. They went the Abraham route. They went according to what the Bible identifies and defines as the God kind of faith. Now, folks, what I want to get across to you is faith is a spiritual force. The Holy Spirit is always going to guide you into the truth. The word is the truth. That means he's always going to guide you into believing the word. The Holy Spirit will always guide you into faith. Why? Because faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory, Jesus said, that changes circumstances. 
Faith is the victory that will overcome the works of the devil against you. Faith is the victory that will overcome poverty. Faith is the victory that will overcome sickness. Faith is the victory that will overcome debt. Faith is the victory that will overcome any problem that you face in this earth. And faith is always based on what you can't see, not what you can see. And again, why is that so important? Because there's a constant battle for the will of man. There's a constant battle for the will of man. Constant battle for the will of man. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to stick with what God said? Remember what God said about his word. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. In other words, the word of God that provides promises for you that you can't see naturally will last longer than the circumstances that tell you that it won't work. The devil is fighting constantly for your will. Every situation, every circumstance. That's why the Bible says to take every thought captive and bring it into obedience to the word. Every thought. Why? Because everything is a battle for your will. Everything is a battle for your will. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. The word of God is truth, folks. He'll guide you to believe in the word. Believe in what you can't see and speak according to what you can't see, not according to what you can see. Brother Hagin told a story one time, or told it many times, but a situation that occurred where he was uh, preaching a service or a seminar in uh, uh, oh, Assembly of God Church, I believe it was. And there was a nearby pastor, another Assembly of God minister, that had come over to the meetings and um, um, been in the ministry for a long time, knew what the Bible said, heard other people preach it, and had contracted a, um, some kind of physical condition. I'm not sure what the sickness was, but it was had gotten so severe that it was severely limiting his ability to, to minister and stuff like that. And if it didn't change pretty quick, he's going to have to give the church over to somebody else and so forth. So he came over to the, to the meeting that Brother Hagen was holding in this other town and um, he was acquaintance, an acquaintance of Brother Hagen's, and the other pastor knew him. And, and um, so they knew that he was coming. They knew when he got there, and they knew that he wanted Brother Hagen to pray for him. So Brother Hagen preached the, whatever message he was preaching that uh, particular time. And this guy came up at the end of the service, and, and everybody in town, it was this, past, this uh, other guy pastored close enough to this uh, town where the meeting was being held that everybody knew the situation. So this guy comes up after the, the service as one of the people in the prayer line and, and uh, Brother Hagin lays hands on him and uh, ministers healing in the name of Jesus. And as soon as he took his hands off of him, the guy kind of hollered out and said, nope, 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 don't have it. I don't feel any different. I, I don't have it. Brother Hagin said his first thought was, man, you're messing up my prayer line. So he started to move on and, and this guy said, no, nope, no. Nope. No, that's not it. That's not it. So Brother Hagin stopped and went back and said, okay, well, let me lay hands on you again. So he laid hands on him the second time. Same thing happened. As soon as he got his hands off of him, the guy said, no, no, don't have it. It's a pastor, a little gospel pastor. No, no, don't have it. So Brother Hagin laid hands on him the third time. Same thing. Didn't even get his hands off of him this time. The guy says, no, no, I don't have it, no. Don't feel any different. It's still there in my body. And uh, Brother Hagin said that he said to himself or said within himself to the Lord, 
Lord, what am I going to do? And the Lord gave him an instruction, instantly gave him an instruction. So Brother Hagin backed up. He said, let me ask you something, brother. He said, when are you going to start believing that you received your healing? Now, during the service, he taught on Mark eleven twenty four. 24. We didn't read it this morning, but it was right on the heels of Jesus talking about speaking to the mountain. He said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. See, folks, you need to understand something. There's a difference between believing you receive and having. You don't need faith for the things you have. You need faith for the things you don't have. And faith is the evidence of things that you don't see. And as soon as you have it, you don't need faith anymore. Your faith is fulfilled. So he, he asked this guy, he said, tell me, brother, when are you going to start believing you receive your healing? The guy said, well, when I have it. Brother Hagin said, well, why would you want to believe for it then? Seems like you'd know it then. And there were a couple of people in the crowd that snickered. And it kind of got the guy's attention. He said, wait, say that again. So Brother Hagin asked him the second time. He said, when are you going to start believing you receive your healing? He said, when I have it. Brother Hagin said the same thing. Why would you want to wait till then? Seems like you'd know it then. More people called on in the crowd and kind of laughed under, you know, kind of a quiet laugh. And he embarrassed this guy. So he said, say that one more time. He thinks this is a trick question and other people, I'm missing something here. So Brother Hagin asked him the third time, he said, when are you going to start believing you receive your healing? And the guy says, when I have my healing. Brother Hagin said, why would you want to wait till then? Seems like you'd know it when you have it. By now, the whole crowd's laughing out loud. And this guy said, well, I just, I don't understand what you're saying. So he went back to his seat, died within a short, short time after, you know, several months later. But Brother Hagin said the end result of that, he said, I had one of the best healing services I ever had in my life because everybody in the crowd caught it. This was a perfect opportunity for them to see the difference between believing according to what God's word says as opposed to believing according to what you see or feel. He said almost everybody else in that healing line received their healing almost instantly. And the ones that didn't receive instantly got it before I left town. Because they saw how it worked. They saw, even if they were inclined to do the same thing as this full gospel pastor did, they saw that it doesn't bring results. You don't need faith for what you already have. The God kind of faith is for what you don't yet have. Do you understand that? And the God kind of faith is a choice to believe God's word no matter what you see or feel. Now, folks, that's the operation of your spirit. That's the operation of your spirit, and it's the number one way that the Holy Ghost will lead you is according to the word of God. The first thing the Holy Ghost is going to tell you is go this direction based on what this word says. Most people want the Holy Ghost to tell them what investment to make. Give me the lottery numbers, Lord. Holy Ghost. But God starts by leading you in the direction of his word. The word says this about you. Start saying that. The word says this about your situation. Start saying that. And it's a still small voice. Like I said, I wish the Holy Ghost spoke as loud as the devil. But that's not how it works. He doesn't try to overpower you with the truth. He just gently leads you to where it is. Your choice. Believe it or not. Act on it or not. Speak it or not. 
But that's always where the Holy Ghost will lead you. The Holy Ghost will always lead you to pay your tithes. The Holy Ghost will always lead you to confess the word. The Holy Ghost will always lead you to tell the truth. Even on your taxes. That never goes over well. But it's the truth. The Holy Ghost will always lead you to act in line with what God's word says. And never oppose to it. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to be doers thereof. Lord, we thank you that the Holy Ghost is in us to lead us, to guide us. We thank you, Father, that it's through our spirits and through your word, the Holy Ghost guiding us to your word, that you reveal yourself to us. You reveal who you are. You reveal who we are. You reveal what we have in Christ Jesus. You reveal what belongs to us as children of God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you lead us in every aspect of life and you lead us into victory in every area of life. Now say this after me. I'm a child of God. Therefore, I'm led by the Holy Ghost. He bears witness within me with my spirit according to the truth of God's word. He always leads me to believe in God's word. He always leads me to confess God's word. I speak God's word in the face of circumstances. In the face of lack, I speak abundance. In the face of sickness, I speak healing. I always speak God's word. Because I'm led by the Holy Ghost who bears witness with my spirit. He always leads me into victory. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Hallelujah. You know, this Christian walks an adventure, it's not for the faint of heart. But oh, what a wonderful life it is. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Have a great day. And come on back and be with us tonight if you can.